Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Support for this podcast comes from the law firm Fenwick. For more than four decades, Fenwick has helped innovative companies become market leaders. Online at Fenwick.com. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. The Trump administration has rejected California's petition for a federal disaster declaration and relief funds in the aftermath of several recent wildfires, including the devastating August Complex fire, the biggest wildfire in state history. A federal disaster declaration would allow for cost sharing between the state and the federal government when it comes to fire cleanup and recovery efforts. Plus, it would give a bigger role to FEMA. No word yet for why the administration rejected California's request, although the state plans to appeal the decision. Let's turn to an example of local authorities not wanting Trump administration assistance. The city of Oakland is challenging the administration's authority to send federal law enforcement to respond to protests. KQD's Nina Thorson has more. City Attorney Barbara Parker says Oakland is joining Portland, Oregon in filing a lawsuit because the Trump administration's new policies represent an unconstitutional interference with local control. The president signed an executive order on June 26th, allowing federal authorities to respond when local or state governments were, quote, failing to protect public monuments, memorials, or statues. The lawsuit says by early July, Federal law enforcement was operating in Portland without the city's knowledge or consent and detained protesters even when they were not on or near federal property. Although nothing like that has happened so far in Oakland, the lawsuit says Trump has repeatedly threatened to send federal agents to the city. For The California Report, I'm Nina Thorson. And here in Los Angeles, the civilian watchdog group overseeing L.A. County Sheriff's Department has released a unanimous resolution demanding that the county's sheriff, Alex Villanueva, resign immediately. It's the latest striking development in an ongoing and bitter conflict between Villanueva and civilian leaders in the county. Villanueva has long been accused of mismanaging the country's largest sheriff's department and cultivating a culture of law enforcement impunity. The sheriff has been blasted specifically for rehiring personnel accused of misconduct, insulting county supervisors, and not doing enough to crack down on gang-like cliques of deputies. Villanueva, who was elected to his position, has vowed to remain in office. 2020 has been marked by several violent protests in California cities between police and demonstrators, like this confrontation in Los Angeles in June. Now, new state recommendations that aim to make demonstrations more peaceful are out. The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin has more. The recommendations are part of the governor's efforts to address both strife towards and mistreatment by law enforcement. Tensions between police, protesters, and journalists have been especially high since demonstrations broke out after the killing of George Floyd in the spring. Being that right now that the protest is not only involving 
the police where there is, in many cases, a lack of distrust. It's about the police, but it definitely heightens it, right? Ron Davis is one half of the governor's police advisor team. He's a former Bay Area police chief and served under President Obama in the Department of Justice's Office of Community-Oriented Policing. He says it's time for law enforcement to modernize its approach to protests. The tact police use now, he says, is the same one he learned at the police academy more than three decades ago. The baton and the clacking of the baton against the shinsplints, the the show of force, you know, for many years was taught as a way of psychologically addressing the crowd so that they would not get out of control. But this aggressive approach agitates protesters instead of setting a tone of compliance, he says. And the new recommendations, which include an emphasis on First Amendment protections and restrictions on using projectiles and chemical agents like tear gas, are seeking to shift the tone. So it's not that you're softening the approach, it's that you're doing an appropriate stance. In other words, your posture should be one that I'm here to, once again, facilitate your First Amendment rights. Now, nearby may be all the equipment necessary in case it does get out of control, but you don't start off by going to a demonstration with an armored vehicle and SWAT gear. Davis says ensuring police safety is also a priority the new guidelines address. For The California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Harvin. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, the political scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following the political scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country, on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts. As we frequently reported, some of the largest COVID-19 clusters in the country are in California's jails and prisons. And at the top of the list is Avenal State Prison in the San Joaquin Valley. As officials have struggled to contain the outbreak, KVPR's Kerry Klein has been speaking with inmates who say the prison's handling of the virus has been chaotic. And that's not only taking a toll on the inmate's safety, but also their mental health. John Walker has been incarcerated at Avenal for a year. He said COVID-19 didn't seem scary at first, but that was before the virus infiltrated the prison in May. I was in the block on Alpha Yard that got the COVID first. One person came in positive and it spread around like wildfire. Walker eventually became one of the nearly 3,000 inmates and 300 employees to contract the virus. Although his case was mild, seven men have died. Avenal's incarcerated men say they don't feel safe. With bunk beds, social distancing is nearly impossible, and men must work as janitors in each other's living spaces. On top of that, dorm assignments keep changing. Family visits and education programs have been halted indefinitely. And as policies continually shift, Walker says he and his fellow inmates feel confused and anxious. They can't get settled. They can't relax. The mental health department is filled with cases of people with anxiety and depression over all this crap. 
When Ed Welker caught the virus, he was moved to different dorms twice while suffering from severe fatigue and a lingering migraine. The prison has set aside different buildings for various stages of quarantine, but Welker says the inmates are given little notice before moving. Everything is kept secret. They'll come to you and they'll say, hey, pack your stuff, you move it. Why? Because uh, Sacramento said that you're moving. And why were they moving you? That, that's, a great, that's a great question. And the men say officials aren't sharing enough information about the prison's plan for managing the outbreak. Jacob Benitez is an elected member of an inmate advisory council. It's one of the prison population's few direct lines with administrators. But since March, he says, meetings have been sporadic. This is a big entity that we're facing. Can we at least get some transparency? The anxiety these men are feeling can have very real consequences. Here's UC Merced psychologist Jennifer Howell. When people are worried and they feel like they have no control, that is when you're seeing lots of negative psychological and physical health outcomes. Her research shows the pandemic has led to chronic stress and disrupted sleep, which can impair long-term immune function and cognition. And that's in communities outside of prison. That kind of environment where you're not necessarily in control over how much space you have from other people, that you are sort of being told what to do, I I imagine that it's, it's just exacerbating these effects incredibly. In an email, California prison officials stated that inmate health and well-being are top priorities and that all inmates get mental health check-ins during daily temperature checks. And they say they keep inmates informed through prison television as well as posters and handouts. Many men tell me they'd feel better if only they could visit with their loved ones. Jacob Benitez says not seeing his wife since March is wearing on his marriage. Just last night, I was talking to my wife and she told me that she forgot my face. She forgot what I looked like. It does put a strain on your relationship. That's why he says his inmate counsel is fighting for video visits as one way to alleviate anxiety. For the California Report, I'm Carrie Klein in Fresno. In recent months, we've heard a lot about statues being taken down in this country. Usually the monuments memorialize long dead people like Confederate generals and Christopher Columbus. But in San Diego, a monument has just been removed that honors a California politician who's still very much alive. Former California governor and U.S. Senator Pete Wilson. The statue of Wilson, put up just 13 years ago, has become a target for recent protests by activists who objected to Wilson's stance on immigration and LGBTQ rights. The nonprofit that owns the statue says it's been put away for safekeeping. And finally, let's end this week on something really different. Whales. That's the sound of a humpback whale off the coast of California. In recent years, these waters, especially around Santa Barbara, have gotten more dangerous for the giant mammals because of the increased danger of collisions between whales and cargo ships. In 2019, there were 13 confirmed vessel strikes in California waters, although the real number is thought to be much higher. In response, researchers at UC Santa Barbara's Benioff Ocean Initiative have developed a first of its kind system to help ships avoid hitting whales. Marine scientist Morgan Vasali helped develop the program and explains why Santa Barbara's coastal waters are especially dangerous for the mammals. The Santa Barbara Channel is really a biodiversity hotspot. We have really nutrient-rich waters that attract all different marine mammal species to the region. So we have important feeding grounds for endangered blue, humpback, and fin whales. We have tons of dolphins. We have the gray whale migration that goes through the channel. 
also in the channel, channel are internationally designated shipping lanes that direct 4,000 transits per year of large ships going to and from the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. So in the Santa Barbara Channel, we have a lot of shipping traffic, and we also have a lot of whales and marine mammals. And so it's a busy stretch of ocean. So you and your colleagues have developed the system to find out where whales are in the channel and then transmit that information to ships passing through. How does it work? So there are three main technology components of WhaleSafe. One is an acoustic listening system. So we have uh, underwater microphones or hydrophones that are listening for sounds in the water and is able to pick up the calls of blue humpback and fin whales. Those are then sent back to shore via a satellite link and are verified by a scientist. The other components are a blue whale model. So it's basically like weather forecasting, but for blue whales. So we use oceanographic data like sea surface temperature to predict where blue whales are likely to be on any given day. And then there's also whale watching and tourism boats that are out in the channel nearly every day. And there are actually community scientists on those boats that then record sightings with a mobile app called Whale Alert. So we then combine the acoustic detections the visual sightings, and the blue whale model to uh, produce an assessment of whale activity each day in the Santa Barbara Channel. And when you find the whales and send off their locations to passing cargo ships, uh, you hope that the, the vessels slow down. So what does success look like for this program? We'd really like to see more of the ships uh, slowing down when we're in times of high whale activity. So because part of WhaleSafe is also tracking ship speeds, we'll be able to measure the success to see if we are seeing higher rates of cooperation with the slow speed zones. And then, of course, success is fewer dead whales washing up on our beaches or coming into port uh, wrapped over the bow of a ship. Um, nobody wants to unintentionally hit and kill a whale, and so we're hoping that this data will really help empower mariners provide them with better situational awareness so that they can take proactive measures to stop these strikes from happening. All right. Morgan Visali of the Benioff Ocean Initiative's Whale Safe Program. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that's the California Report for this Friday, October 16th, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer. I'm Saul Gonzalez in L.A. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, acknowledging the vital work of local public health departments to keep Californians safe during the pandemic. On the web at chcf.org. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. 
We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.